0: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc?
2: Oh, yes, yes, my
1: dear fellow, I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hi, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 36 on Manly Wade Wellman's Who Fears the Devil? I'm Jeff, and with us tonight is our folksy troubadour, Hoy. Hello. And we have a special guest with us tonight, author of the upcoming Lankmar box set for DCC and many other DCC adventures, including Frozen in Time, Intrigue at the Court of Chaos, and the Sinister Sutures of the centrist. we have Michael Curtis.
2: Hello, all of you literary peoples. It is a pleasure to be here this evening.
1: Yes, thank you, Michael Curtis, for joining us. It's exciting to have you on the show. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So tell us, how did you get into gaming to start off? Well, um, I usually put it down to a, a
2: lifelong uh a uh, trend of making poor life choices uh but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but actually uh like many people of my age group i was in, i was indoctrinated uh by an older my my older cousin was three years older than me who i was visiting relatives for christmas break in it would be 2008 No, not 2000, sorry, 1980, and it was a rainy day around Christmas, and my cousin Matt said, would you like to play a game? I said, sure. And uh, he brought this game out, and there was no board to it or anything, and uh, it was the Holmes basic set. And he promptly handed me a stack of characters. So my very first time playing d and I played an entire party. So I don't have any cute, you know, <laughs> my first class was, my first class was an entire party. And, uh, and he explained that I, we were going to go into the dungeon and find the treasure. So uh, I was 10 at this point. So we went into the dungeon and we beat up some giant ants and I found like 30 copper pieces. And my cousin Matt was like, okay, all right. what do you do now? I was like, well, I go back to town because we found the treasure, right? We won, right? And he was like, <laughs> no, 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 there's more treasure. So uh, that that kind of led into a series of, uh, of events involving slamming doors in the faces of hellhounds and falling down a series of increasingly deep pits. Uh, luckily, I was concerned that once we fell into a 60-foot pit, we wouldn't have enough rope. Um, but uh, <laughs> but after, <laughs> after that, I came, uh, that was the end of Christmas, and then uh, we got back from Christmas, and I said, Mom, you have to buy me this game and uh she wasn't able to find it but uh, a little while later that was would have been in 81 and that's when the Moldvay basic set came out and uh it's been i've been involved since then
0: actually i'm noticing a trend a lot of our guests started with holmes which is actually kind of unusual because you always we always tend to hear about people either starting with the red box or or you know directly into ad and d so it's pretty interesting that a lot of our guests have started with holmes and that they somehow get hooked in that that way
2: yeah, I, I still although I started with Holmes, I still consider the Moldvay version that that was mine because that was the first one I actually owned, and that was like right. the first first one I actually read. And uh, right. you know, so. So,
0: so
1: so without dragging you into the edition wars, <laughs> if you had to claim a favorite version of D anD D, would it be the the Moldvay Cook BX set?
2: Oh yeah, I mean that's still my go to. Uh, I mean I can run pretty much I can run BX without books at this point. You know, I mean, you know, if, if I <laughs> I mean, I, I can tell you what a magic missile does, what a sleep spell does, you know, I mean, we just rattle it off. I don't have to look at anything. So.
0: <laughs> uh, so, Michael, then how then did you become aware of Appendix N as a concept? Um, uh, were you looking at the Molvey list or did you go back to AD&D like pretty quickly or how did that come to you?
2: Well, you know, that was the, it was the early 80s. So it was that time period where there was a lot of overlap between basic and advanced D&D. There was no like mm-hmm. hard line. Um I don't remember when I picked up the Dungeon Masters guide, but you know, it, it couldn't have been too long after I got the basic set. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was like the first ex- exposure to Appendix N. Um I mean, I was kind of aware of the Moldvay stuff, but again, like I was 10 years old and this was this is all pre this is all pre Amazon. This is before. I mean, it was like, if there were so many names on there. If the local library didn't have it, you know, you were just kind of, you know, yes, oh well. Um, right, so well. Right. So, um, were you reading so,
0: some of those authors before then, though? I mean, just as a general fantasy fan, I mean, like Tolkien is obviously a po- pretty popular one, but, you know, some of the more obscure authors. I wonder yeah, if they yeah. came-
2: Um There was the like the really obscure ones. It, not until much later on, mm-hmm. uh, much later in life. I mean, I had. Re- I mean, like ten to twelve years old. I mean, I was aware of Tolkien, but um, you know, even some of the more you know, like, even some of the more well known, like like Lovecraft. Lovecraft, I didn't know about until I read Stephen King uh, in high school, and he would talk about Lovecraft, and then uh, I remember finally getting my hands on one of the like Lovecraft's um, like the, the stories that he ghost wrote uh, mm-hmm. And reading those in like in a cabin in the middle of the night in Maine, and ah, if there you any, go. <laughs> Even those are the those are the best of Lovecraft's work. The the circumstances to read those under was 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 impeccable.
0: So right, right, absolutely. That's sort of how uh, I, I I related on one of my earlier episodes. What got me to quit was reading uh, Dreams in the Witch House in my attic. So. <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. As as Michael was telling that story, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Hoy. <laughs> so now, Michael, one of the things that you're more famous for writing is the chained coffee. And box set for Dungeon Call Classics, which is very heavily influenced by Manly Wade Wellman. How did How did Manly Wade Wellman come into your 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 awareness?
2: Uh, to be honest, he wasn't really in my my kind of on my radar until like the late two th- like the late two thousands, maybe even as early as maybe even as as late as maybe two thousand ten. Okay. Um, and I became aware of him because uh, back uh, when there was the the old school blog uh, when Grognardia was still up and running, yep. um, uh, they would uh, uh, James would do like every now and then he would do like a focus on one of the authors, and he did he did one post on Manly Wade Wellman about the John the Balladeer series. And I, ha- I was completely unfamiliar with him at that point, but just reading the description of it, because I'm like, I'm, I really love that Americana folklore and, you know, i have kind of a, a fan for, you know, like horror and stuff. So, uh, so it just seemed perfect to, to read. And I've had such, you know, like go, uh, I've had such wonderful experience and have such a rapport with like the, with the mountains, even though it's like, you know, like Northern Catskill area rather than, you know, the, the Southern, you know, Appalachians. Mm -hmm. Um, that I said, okay, you know, I definitely have to track this down. And I did, and I I read it and I just fell in love with the language right off the bat. I mean, he was just did such an amazing job of, of of conveying, uh, the way people speak and that kind of down home folksy, um, attitude, in the written word that I, just, I fell in love with it all, you know, right off the bat. And, you know, I've, I've, I keep going back to him um, whenever, whenever time allows. And, uh, and every now and because of that people, I've been aware of some of the other stuff he's done, like, uh, like the uh, Hoke the mighty, uh, like his, his caveman stories. And I keep, oh, I think we were, I was telling you, I think at Gen Con, I was still trying to track down some of the, uh, um, it was a uh, swords, the swords against wizardry uh, series. Mm-hmm. Um, Because he has he has his own like um his like I forget the name of but his like Atlantean barbarian or something uh Mm -hmm. which I which I definitely want to read
1: very cool so this week we're as I mentioned we're discussing Manly Wade Wellman's the collection Who Fears the Devil and the version that I'm working with right now is the first edition Ballantine paperback from 1964 and I I don't know who the artist is on this cover it's got kind of this like nice rustic cover that's got a mermaid with the lute. And John the Balladeer in what looks like a suit made out of, um, out of playing cards. You've got the devil or like some little pan character with his pan pipe. Um, what what version of the book are you guys working with for this week's episode?
0: Um, I, I am working with the Planet Stories one from Paizo, which is um, all those stories plus the stories he wrote after the original edition of um, Who Fears the Devil came out. So he wrote some more stories going into the 80s. Um, and then there's a couple of sort of uh, what you might call um, apocryphal John, uh, John the Balladeer stories in the back that, that where he kind of wrote before he started the John the Balladeer series, um, which he sometimes claims are John the Balladeer stories. Um, so, yep, that's the one I'm working with. And how about you, Michael?
2: Uh, I'm with the same one with Jeff is I'm with the 1964 Valentine one with the, with the funky cover, which has all the, the mermaids and the ghost. I mean, the, the, the pan, the devil and the spaceship for some reason, which mm-hmm. is, which is
0: <laughs> right. I don't know what that's all about. Right. And my <laughs> first a... exposure was, sorry, go ahead. my first exposure was the, uh, is it the Bane one? The, uh, with the Stephen Hickman cover in the eighties with the um, which is the John the Balladeer, not, not uh, who fears the devil. Yeah. So yeah
2: that's the one with there's like a witch or like a succubus kind of looking over her shoulder or something right, and
0: he's playing the guitar and he looks yeah. a little older in that one and that's a, that's a lovely cover so that's uh that's probably uh if you can't find the planet stories one that's probably the one to go to if you want a, like the best exposure to john the Balladier. i think
1: very cool and on the back of the edition that michael and i are working with it says manly wade wellman is a name unique in science fiction This is odd, although no odder than his stories, for what he writes is not science fiction. But it happened that Mr. Wellman made his first appearance in print in in a discerning science fiction magazine. Regular science fiction readers, a discriminating and intelligent crew, immediately took him to (laughs) heart and demanded more and more of his strange tales of the North Carolina mountains. Actually, Mr. Wellman's work is not bound by space or time, and least of all by science. Indeed, it is downright unscientific and most unsettling and frankly, habit forming. But Mr. Wellman is a habit you should cultivate. And before <laughs> we get into our thoughts about this book, I'm going to quickly go into our Hygaxian word of the day. And normally this is where I would pause and you would hear my phone pronounce the word for me. But this word is uh, so obscure, I, don't, <laughs> I wasn't able to find a, a proper pronunciation guide for it online. And the word is desric which appears on page 88. He says, what's a deserik exactly? And he says, uh, somebody replies, that's a word only old-timey folks use these days. It's the kind of cabin they used to make, strong logs and a door you can bar with uh, loophole windows. So maybe you might might could stand off Indians. And then it's again mentioned on page 94, where he says, and at the open space, on the lip of the way down, perched the deserik." And the reason I picked this word is, for one thing, the manly Wade Wellman his his prose is not super flowery. It's very kind of down home and folksy. So we're not encountering a lot of the kind of vancian words that you would often find in Appendix N. But also, I like to district because we have an entire story devoted to district, inclu- to a district, including discussion about what the word means. So it seemed like a fun word. Do you guys have any candidates you would like to throw into the mix for our hygaxian word of the week?
0: Um, I like Gardanel, which is one of the monsters in there. And uh, the other one that probably comes up a lot is Punchin', which I guess is the sort of floorboards in some of these caverns. Okay, nice. Yeah. How about you, Michael?
2: Uh, I, I, I don't have a word, but uh, if you read enough Wellman, it's it's the letter Y. Uh, huh. because, because, because <laughs> when he really gets, when it gets really folksy, uh, he will have a word end with why, like, like when he talks about a greeny stone or my favorite, where he's talking about a slope being the steepiest, um, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's great. <laughs> so perfect. So now that we've done that, we can go on into the library and start chatting about what we thought about the book. Um, I think it's fair to say you probably like this collection of stories, Michael, <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah i mean enough that i've read it maybe five times so yes <laughs> um
1: how about you hoy what did you think
0: uh i love this i i remember reading these uh again around maybe somewhere in junior high high school i remember seeing the novels although i never was able to get into the novels. i think that was a little too dense for me at that point in terms of the dialect and what was going on but the stories i've always loved um but i do think it was actually an interesting uh point in the paizo uh edition i think it was uh michael resnick made it um point you said that the stories should kind of be treated like sipping whiskey don't try to read them all at once because they're sort of thematically very similar so i think it's more benefits from like reading one a night two a night rather than trying to like read four in a day you know what i'm saying yeah that's actually
2: how when i did the reread for this um, I was just, I just did one a day and stretched it out over the course of about a week and a half. Um, because again, I went with the first couple of times. It's, it has been probably, I haven't read them probably since I was doing The Chain Coffin. So I was coming mm-hmm. back to it after a good couple of years and, and definitely doing the one, like the one story. And then the one short bridging, um, the, not even a short story. Not, I don't even know what it is. I don't know how you describe vignette, that. Or, yeah. The vignettes. Vignette. Yes.
0: You know, and I love the vignettes. I think the vignettes in some ways are, are encapsulate. What's he, he's trying to do equally well as the full length stories? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't really encountered any kind of what we would call now flash fiction in in the appendix N, but it's 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 a really good mood setter. And uh, what is it called? Like it's it's like an amuse bouche for uh, mm-hmm. what lies ahead. To put it into um, fancy man language, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of language where I need to be wearing a store bought suit.
0: There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You know, it was like rereading this again after doing – after coming off the big, you know, the big Liber Lankmar thing, Uh, it it brought to mind of how – when, when Lieberg was originally doing the Fafford and Great Master stories, he didn't write them in any sort of chronological order, so when they assembled them in the anthologies, he wrote a bunch of connecting stories, yes. um, you know, or just tie them together and put some sort of sense of order to them, and just manly well, but he doesn't have to worry about connecting them because a lot of the stories, like, they have an inherent connection, because usually like like uh, John is talking about where he's going next or something, and mm-hmm. then the next story will we'll pick up with him there, uh, but I, it in that in that sense of, of having some sort of Sense of kind of a, a twine to tie the big branches, big, big branches of stories together, and to make a, a literary raft. Uh, I think the little short vignettes were a little bit more successful than uh, Libra's uh, prolonged uh, kind of going back and trying to make the sausage out of what was already there.
0: Yeah, I think we agree. I think we talked about that when we did the Libra episode, right, Jeff? That the, the vignettes were a little weird. They kind of threw people off a little bit. Yeah,
1: sense? we we have discussed that. I, I I find that the little vignettes are less successful in the Libra collection so far.
0: Yeah. I mean, these are terrific. Like, who else could I count on when, when he meets the mm. old man? And He goes, "Lord have mercy," you know. Or the uh, nary spell. Uh, you know, I, I won't give these away, but just look for the vignettes. They're so they're so fun. Um, and I, I wonder, maybe again, that well, I haven't read enough other Wellman to wonder specifically if this character really works again in that sort of those little sort of sips or or or. Uh, like uh, maybe the novels aren't successful in that way. Did, did you read the Michael, the novels, Michael?
2: I, I have read, I believe, I think he did five. I think I've read three out of the five. Uh, the, the last two, I've, I haven't i have been able to quite to track down yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, the, the novels are good. They're definitely, definitely not uh, the ones you want to be indoctrinated into John the Balladier. And right. it's definitely better to come in with some sort of, you know, background of it. Right, um, right. But you know, I, 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 although they're 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 fine and they you know it's wellman just taking a story and and taking it on a prolonged basis so you're getting more bang for your buck i still am a fan of the short stories over i am over the novels mm-hmm. um so
1: one thing i've discovered is um you know i'm I I recognize that expectations can play a big role in my personal level of enjoyment for things. Sometimes if something is really, really hyped up, I go in expecting something and then not getting that and then can be a little disappointed. And I will say I loved, loved, loved some of these stories, but some of them really didn't work for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Which ones would those be in particular?
1: The two that particularly didn't really work for me is I found old Devlin's was a waitin, the one about the Hatfield and the McCoys. Mm-hmm. That one I found really kind of uh, dense and confusing, and then on the hills and everywhere, the story where he literally meets jesus mm-hmm. um was kind of well, he doesn't meet he doesn't meet <laughs> Jesus. He recounts a story about somebody meeting oh, Jesus. That's true. That's so. true. He's uh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. He's telling a story yeah, about right. a guy who meets Jesus. And I don't know. It just it reminded me too much of just like the foot foot footprints in the sand or whatever those little things were for, that you would see in every grandmother's home in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. Those those two stories really didn't work for me. What right. what did you guys think of them?
0: Hmm. I did like. Um. I sort of agree with you about the first one, but I did actually like, or I recall really liking. Um. Sorry. What was the second story called? Um, on the hills and everywhere. On the hills and everywhere. Um. But I guess it's an interesting point. I mean, and and I should throw it over to you, Michael. But this is the most explicitly Christian. I mean, it's not disguised in any way, shape, or form, unlike some some more par- parables that we've read in some of the other stories that we've read for this project. So anyway, I'll throw that back to you, Michael. And then. Right.
2: Well, you know, over the hills and everywhere, it's it's literally his Christmas story. I mean, I mean, it hits, it's John recounting the story while they're waiting for Christmas dinner and everything. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and it was also, you know, it's the 1950s. So, you know, this this (laughs) is what we get before. This is what we get before the Charlie Brown Christmas special. So (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll cut him slack for that, you know, sure. Um, And and I I, I get that you know um and, and I actually enjoy uh, it took me a little while but uh, on this read through I I really do enjoy old Devils was waiting uh, because I like the fact that they're bringing in this kind of this like the the scientific um uh, you know, it's not just John doing the the backwoods. You know, I, I've got a I've got a way to solve this with my silver strings on my yeah you know, my guitar, and you know I, I know the old study witcher. This is actually we have we have some science in here, and we're mm-hmm. uh, we you know we start and uh, his the, uh, the 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 prolonged breakdown of the meaning of the religious uh, – not the religious, the, the occult um, talisman, the, uh, you know, um, I said, what's it, uh, 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 Sato, Arepo, Tenet, Opera, mm-hmm. Rotars? You know, no mm-hmm. fact that we have, like, a good page and a half of them breaking that down and what that means, because I was actually kind of aware of what I, – I knew – I, I knew of those things before I read this story um but I've just had seen them written in various you know you know uh, crazy books you'll see in the occult bookshop um yeah. but this one this is the, actually breaking it down the meaning of what I found rather enjoyable hmm. um so I like I, it's an interesting it's an interesting way to uh tackle the 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 concept of time travel in a way mm-hmm. without being time travel and i'm not usually a big fan of time travel stories so right, right. Um, i guess i i liked it just because of the way that he framed it right
0: in fact there's a fair amount of science like they talk about the doppler effect in the one the little back train right um and so he's well versed in it but he kind of wears it a little bit more lightly than say lovecraft is when he or some of the other authors who do a little bit of an info dump so mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that in in the it sort of comes naturally in the stories.
1: Yeah, and one thing that I did like about Old Devlin's was Awaitin', um was that it had this kind of theme of inherited destinies that I found kind of popping up throughout the stories, including in my favorite story in the collection, which was the Destrik and Yandro. This this idea of we we keep encountering these stories where we meet like the child or the grandchild of somebody, and that somehow they are fulfilling the destiny of the person who's long since passed away. Um, I thought I thought that was kind of a fun theme, kind of a fun recurring theme, but definitely the district the district on Yandro was my favorite in the collection. What is, what is your guys' favorite? Um, I you know what I have to say,
2: I, I really enjoy Oh Ugly Bird. And Hmm. the reason that I enjoy O Ugly Bird is is I don't know if Wellman was intending to do a series of these stories when he wrote O Ugly Bird, but if he wasn't, he this is it's just a such a great example of he sets everything Everything in the, in the story, everything you need to know to enjoy any, you know, um, any John the Valadier story from that place, from that point on. Like he establishes the rules of the setting, you know, where there are, you know, there's, there's witch folk in there and the, the silver strings and the purpose of the silver strings. And, uh, like you said before, like the, the, you know, the, he does touch upon science, uh, in a bit. I mean, this is more, it's more like the, the concept of protoplasm. Uh, but it, it gets the idea that John isn't, he's like not, he knows a lot about, uh, various topics, but he's not like, he's, his, his knowledge is broad, but not deep. Um, so like he's able to, like, it takes some thinking, but he, he remembers protoplasm and such. Um, you know, I, 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 I it just, I like that. Uh, that's, you know, that's one of my favorites out of there.
0: Hmm. Um, for my part, again, I love the vignettes, but mine might be Nine Yards of Other Cloth, which is, um, that, that's the one where I guess he meets everdare right and and he goes to hosea's hollow and you know we're not sure what's going to be in there what kind of evil was there and has a nice little twist it's a little bit um it's a little bit uh twilight zoney but it's it's got some it's got a lot of atmosphere and again it plays a lot on i mean all these stories pull pull on the local mythology to the point where you're wondering whether he's making it up or if it's actual local mythology it's a it's a pretty seamless in terms of what wellman is doing right you would really have to be well versed in the mythology of the appalachians to say oh no he just made that part up no that's that's you know something that is really part of our folklore you know Mm mm-hmm
2: so. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm still. I'm still not sure if he was the one who made up the fact that Jesus is exactly the only person who's exactly six feet tall. Quit, oh, exactly. Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. right.
2: I, I've never heard that anywhere outside of Manly Way Wellness.
1: I'm curious where that comes from. <laughs>
0: right. I remember that one very specifically. I remember Blue Monkey from when I was a kid. That that one was hilarious. Mm-hmm. That vignette, and I think Nary Neri, Nary Spell is probably one of my favorite stories, too, the vignettes. Also, you know the tale of Hoff. That's pretty scary, and and you know it's very interesting. And I, as you say, it's interesting because he's never totally in control of the situation, right? He kind of walks into things. Sometimes he instigates them. Sometimes he's a witness. Um, mm-hmm. So that's an interesting role to play. It's not he's not like um, sort of uh, larger than life the way that uh, you know Elric or Conan or some many of the other characters that we've read are. Right.
2: Yeah. He's he's does he doesn't even fully fall into the occult detective trope. Mm-hmm. Although there is some of it, you know, I mean, the, like, if you want to go with something like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Karnacki, the ghost hunter or, you know, John Constantine or anything else. like Those are those are guys who, for the most part, you know, specifically go into a situation to deal with it. And as you said, John is more like, well, I'm in the middle of traveling somewhere or I came here because I heard you people know a song, which I don't know. And, right, right. and oh, <laughs> I just I just happen to know something about how to deal with witches. So, right. you know, let me let me give it a hand.
1: Exactly. But it's also not so absurd to where we're bordering on, like, um, what was the show with Angela Lansbury? Um, oh, murder, She
0: Wrote, where she's a killer. Yeah, ev-
1: exactly. Everywhere she goes, somebody just happens to get murdered. You know, it's like, yeah, he's not necessarily, like, seeking out these adventures. But he, but but as he gets there, he is kind of it, – it seems as though the story makes sense and it's not just a series of him, like, stumbling into – paranormal and bizarre circumstances like oftentimes there's enough of the story kind of explaining why he's there that it makes it work
0: mm. and cool. and it's established that these Appalachians, that this is um i guess the sort of membrane between our reality and the reality of folklore is, is quite thin right and so that it's natural that he just comes into these Situations. It's not like they come out of whole cloth because everybody already believes in these things. You know, yeah. when he when he goes to the spots,
2: I will say though with a little black train that that's a little story where he literally gets roped into it by a drunk guy. Right, like he's, just, he's just walking <laughs> along a drunk
1: guy like come on the party. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but that's one and, thing and, that and makes that makes uh, John such a fun character. Is he he kind of won't say no to a life experience? You know, right. he's he's really a character who. His riches are just having a rich and full life and seeing and doing everything that he can see and do. So it completely makes sense that when a drunk man's like, hey, come over, come on, come on over here with me, they'll be like, all right, sure. <laughs> it <laughs> I, works. I, and I have, to, I have to say, there are probably very
2: few people out there who can't identify with being roped into an adventure by a drunk guy. I mean, I think we've all been there at some point or another. You know? right. <laughs> that's fair, that's fair.
0: Right, right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, indefinitely- Especially for
0: it's, to you who are regular con goers, I'm sure that's even more so. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, also very true. <laughs> what I found kind of the most enjoyable about this overall, though, is I just I really enjoyed his turns of phrase. Like mm-hmm. the, the very first the very few first words in the collection is where I've been is places and what I've seen are things, which is just a great way to start a story. And, and I wrote down a couple of these quotes that just cracked me up. Like one was um, with a store suit and a black hat, like a man running for a superior court judge. <laughs> and another one was his buckskin hair was combed across his head to baffle folks. He wasn't getting bald. <laughs> and then the last one I wrote down is there was a house full of people and he described it as enough men and women to swing a primary election. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> my uh my fa- my favorite words which i remembered uh they one point they describe a rainstorm as it was a raining tom cats and hoe
0: handles <laughs> <laughs> uh, i like i like this phrase it's one of the stories that's later it's from um let me see it's the uh it's the second evidence. Trill was Burden. So he's talking about sort of the other witch. There's always frequently a witchy woman, a very seductive witchy woman in these stories, right? So one of the witchy women like walks away and, and she's she swung, she switched away, uh, moving in three directions at once, the way someone would think they look pretty when they do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very little Abner, I guess, you know? So <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I like it because I feel like in the Appendix N – we've got a lot of stories where kind of the focus is civilization versus kind of the rustic outer lands or whatever, you know, with, with, with Fritz Leiber very much the, the civilization is kind of the the central point. And we've got the characters who are kind of like going out into the wildlands. where with Conan, it's different. Like with Conan, there's this constant like suspicion of, of big city life. And this kind of reminds me a little bit more of like the Conan side of it, where, you know, I, like like in the 70s, we had a lot of these, like we had like The Hills Have Eyes and Deliverance. These like movies where we're like we're terrified of what those folks living in the mountains could be doing. But here we've got these like really just like charming people living these um, really kind of quaint, fun lives in the in the mountains. And they're very suspicious and cautious of big city folks or people who are dressed a little too nice or people who speak a little too a, a, a little too clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I found that to be kind of uh, a fun, endearing part of this.
2: Right, I mean, but I mean, that's also, but that's also part of the culture, though. I mean, you I mean you, if you're dealing with you know people who are kind of scraping a living out in the mountains, the last thing they want to see is the revenue man or somebody who's going to be coming out poking around for your still or something like that. I, so I, there's I, that that natural suspicion of anybody who's not from the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which I get. Which for I mean, if you're going to approach that from a, you know, uh, I mean, I think that's kind of where the stereotype of you know the the inbred you know mountain folk came from because it's it's kind of a it's a reaction to that it's like well then if they don't want us up there then what are they doing up there i mean you know
1: yeah and it's very much it's the constant fear of the other and if you're the folks living up in the mountain having the mountains having a simple life you're going to be afraid of those city folks who are coming in with their good suits and vice versa if you're a city folk who's wearing a nice suit you're going to be afraid of those mountain folks who are walking around you know with i don't know dirt stains on their clothes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: All right. Now that was, that was actually one of the very big concerns that I had when I was doing the chain coffin is mm-hmm. when, I, cause I wanted, I wanted to treat the, the Appalachian culture with respect. Yeah. I didn't want, I didn't want anybody to read that and look like, you know, especially the New York guy, you know, like the, you know, the guy from New York writing about, you know, Appalachian culture. I didn't want it to come across as me being, you know, um, looking down on anybody or engaging in any stereotypes. So um, it was, so I drew a lot of, you know, like the Foxfire, books, which is, you know, like an, you know, an anthropological overview written by the people of the mountains was very helpful for in that. But, um, but then, and then of course, Manly Wade Wellman, he's, he's got such a love for the, you know, the North Carolina mountains and everything. Just, it comes through in the, in the literature that uh, just, just following in his kind of lead, um, it got me to where I needed to be without, Mm -hmm. you know, um, inadvertently insulting or indulging in any of the stereotypes that um, are so easy to indulge in by a lot of people.
0: Right, right. One thing I thought also interesting and sort of maybe connects or builds off of that is that, as much as there's supernatural horrors in the story, that ultimately all the evils in these stories are down to sort of human motives. A lot of times it's jealousy, it's greed, um, and it's not unique to the city folk or the regional folk. You know that these motives, right? These motives are are universal. They may they may be sort of um, dressed up differently, but you know, for example, the, the the character in *Old Ugly Bird*. He's 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 sort of he's wearing a suit, but he's he's from that region. The villain, right. You know, and so, then yeah. and
2: and then in in both case of what uh, of uh, was it the, the was it the other not the other half the other one well, one other and then with the the uh, the desert on on Yando. Those were both, you know, both city folk who were kind of, you know, after some money or gold or whatever, and they get involved in the situation. So, yeah, so you, you do get the, there's no nobody has a, a monopoly on being, a you know, a pain in the ass. <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> that is true. And this is probably a good way to segue into the gaming side of the conversation, because in addition to that, you're, you're totally right, Hoy. But we also do have all kinds of very inventive monsters in here as well. I, especially, I, I forget which story it is, but we've got one story where we've got the Toller, the Flat, the Bamet, the Behinder, the Skim, and the Culverin.
0: Right, that's the that's, that's the Desert Ganyandro. Yeah, the, Ganyan yes, the Desert Ganyandro, <laughs> otherwise
2: known as the Monster Manual story. Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the Flat is a flat monster who acts like a floor and eats people. What was the name of that monster in the Monster Manual? Because that's completely there. Uh, so,
0: so the, the, tra- the the Trapper. The one that looks- the trapper, the Trapper, right, right, right. yes,
1: yes. Right.
0: And That's there's also really the mimic, nice. the one that looks like the uh like the the treasure chest, also right. is kind of similar <laughs> yeah. and related to that. The, the,
2: the, the flat is more like the killer carpet because it's right. all furry, so it right, looks right. more like you know, like the green rug was suddenly to attack you in the middle <laughs> right. of the you know the photo shoot or something. You know
0: right, right. <laughs> totally, totally. And, and uh, I like that he sees the behind her, but he will never talk of it, and so you still don't know what the behind her looks like. Right? <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah,
2: because that, that, we, we I had to do. I think it was in. I don't remember if it was in the original chain coffin one or or one of the supplements that came afterward. We actually did, we put like a behinder in there too. Uh, And when it came to the description, I don't remember what I did for it, but I remember, I remember going to like, okay, how do I describe the thing that you never see? Um,
0: (laughs) I have in my mind sort of like a Basil Wolverton monsters, you know, from the old sort of like plop comics and what have you. That's what.
1: (laughs) I don't know who Basil Wolverton is.
0: Who is that? He was, he's a comic book artist. He drew these like really incredibly grotesque characters and monsters. Okay. Like all warty and stuff like that. And he was very popular. I mean, he was, he'd been around forever, but he was very popular in the early seventies. Oh, cool. Um, But, but, um, and plop was one of the comics he worked on and he did a lot of space comics, but. If you uh, you know if you ever see any of his art, you'll be like, oh, yep, that's Basil Wolverton, and it just feels like these monsters are sort of Basil Wolverton, especially the one creature that has like the one leg and the one arm. I'm trying to remember what that one was called. Yeah, and it ha- yeah. Okay. that seems like you know. So
1: <laughs> now, do we all do we all think that this is the source of the Bard?
0: Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. I mean, uh, not the only source, but yeah, no, yeah.
1: Um, but the yeah, primary I, well, source I, sounds like Michael Curtis is less. Less convinced. I
2: I I'm not willing to go to bat one way or the other on that. Okay. Um. Yeah. I, it's it, it. It's it's definitely plausible. Um. But I wouldn't say I'm not comfortable saying that it's a certainty. <laughs> Fair.
1: Um, no,
0: all right. Well, Tim Tim Cask will rain fire on us and tell us how we're all wrong if we're you know if we do. <laughs> 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 but uh, no, I feel like there is especially because that weirdo progression they had in AD and D you know, where you have to be a fighter first and then a thief and then a druid sort of, you know, to become, so he was clearly a fighter, right? He was in the Korean army, right? I mean, Korean war, right? And then I guess his hoboing, you could say, say he was a thief at that point, although he, he doesn't steal, but you know, and then he becomes a full on bard. So that's, It's just, it's such a weird class to begin with though.
1: It is. And what's fun about, um, about Silver John is that he doesn't even carry a weapon. The few times he gets in a fight, he just full on like grabs his guitar and breaks it over somebody's head.
2: (laughs) Right. 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 And John the balladeer, please come on. Let's honor Wilman. Wilman hated Silver John. He
0: hated that. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay, John the balladeer. Interesting.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. Because yeah. So, I mean even here on the planet stories, when it says the complete tales of silver John, rather than the complete tales of ba- John the balladeer. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, that was a so woman was dead at that point. So they
1: could break well, whatever they
2: wanted to, right. but I'm sure, sure alive. I'm sure they would have gotten a stern note. Right. Um, right. That's
0: funny. Uh,
1: so I guess, I mean, we, we, we've got you on the show, Michael, and you're somebody who's actually written a whole, a whole box set kind of adapting and, and this, more. this idea and more adapting this kind of principle to a role-playing setting. And specifically one for dungeon crawl classics, I guess what, what, what did you take from these stories and how did you kind of make it your own and make it fit with DCC? Yeah.
2: We, I mean, I, it's actually funny that you talk about the box set more. It's like there was only some way that somebody could get their hands on not only the box set, but everything that had been published up until this date in one convenient hardback <laughs> format. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It would be. <laughs> but, so Michael, is this happening? <laughs> oh yes <laughs> Thanks, by the way <laughs>
2: yeah, right now currently uh i don't know how many more days they have to go so i don't know when this is dropping but uh I, as part of the massive bundle of uh the, the latest dcc rulebook reprint um when they're doing the reprint of the chain coffin and it's going to have everything it's going to have the two digest size adventures that i wrote the stuff that has been appearing in the uh uh, the Gen Con programs and and such, and I, I wrote I wrote some new material for it too, so Terrific. definitely Terrific. Worth, Terrific. definitely worth while checking out. So, but uh, that getting my plug out of the way, and you know, <laughs> um, well, let's see, the whole it's very funny. It's the the whole process of where the chain coffin came from was I had. I had an idea. Actually, I had a, I had a vision in my head when, uh, when Joe wanted me to do, uh, do an adventure. And originally it, it was, it was much different it involved. They, it involved like a, this kind of like space capsule, which floated down this river and there were aliens and what have you in it. But then I had this vision of this party of adventures dragging this coffin up over like the ridge of a mountain during a thunderstorm. Yes. And with like a lightning in the background, and everything. I was like, okay, there's a story yeah, on it. Yeah, that's badass. And it wasn't. T- it wasn't until later I realized that I was I was tapping into William Faulkner's as I lay dying um, so I mean that was kind of like the seed of that but, but you know Faulkner being southern Gothic anyway it wasn't too big of a stretch to start playing around with the ideas of, of you know William of, of uh, man of the Way Wellman. And I have all you know. I guess as I said, I've always been interested in kind of Americana, uh, like the folklore. I grew up on the Colby books, which are about you know the about Bigfoot and you know all the rest of that stuff. You know, in search of you know with with Leonard Nimoy every week talking about some crazy stuff that was going on. And I just ate that stuff up. So I when I pitched the idea to Joe, I said, "Let's. I want to do." An American fantasy setting, which I, nobody has really done. Of course, as, as soon as I say that, Greg, somebody will point out that Greg Stafford has already done that thirty years ago. Just <laughs>
1: a a day.
2: But, but, but as far as I know, um, it was very one of the few, you know, kind of fantasy Americana uh, thing. So, it, when I decided to go that way, it was it was basically from the from the get go. Go back and reread my Weldon, and kind of I did the same thing when I was doing Wellman. That I ended up doing when I was doing library is that I, I would read the stories and I had a composition notebook next to me with a pen ready and I would just jot down, it would be turn of phrase, it would be the way he, you know, describes something, it would be the various monsters, it would be, you know, like uh, the terms and vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was all the kind of the, that served as the background for it. And then a lot of it uh, was involved, like like I said, I spent a lot of times in the Catskill region of New York, which I went to college up there. Uh, So I have this great love for the mountains, and it's still one of my favorite places to be. So I kind of took that love and... Merged it with uh, what Wellman had kind of laid the path with. And then I took everything that we had developed with DCC and kind of put the DCC spin on the Wellman stuff and then put my love of mountains and my own enthusiasm and emotions into it. And I think that's why it ended up working as well as it does. Uh, so it's cause it's not, this was definitely not a case of something that happened. Yeah. Okay. You know, Joe needs me to write 10,000 words for an adventure. So. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, I mean, it started like, okay, let's do a 10,000 word adventure. And I did that. And as things were going along, I told Joe, it's like, you know, if this, if this works, I have, you know, I can do. I can do sequels to this all day long. And, and then that was the, then the Kickstarter came up because we wanted to do the spinning wheel puzzle. Mm-hmm. And then once the, 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 once the Kickstarter started going so well, it was like, well, oh, then we're going to add the, all these stretch goals. And, mm-hmm. and then I got to write all those stretch goals. <laughs> <laughs> so the stuff that I was imagining might take a good couple of years to kind of get out of my system. I got out most of it in one big run. <laughs> um, but, but I've been adding to that ever since, you know, with the, with the new adventures and, and, you know, the stuff for the Gen Con program. That's that's great. Um, and
1: they're really fun adventures. I, you know, I've played through a little bit of, uh, the chain coffin, the actual adventure. I've definitely played through all of sour spring hollow and Hoy, what did, what did, what did, uh, what did David run for us?
0: Um, I think he ran the entire sequence that was in the box set, not the separate books. And then that was how the, the infamous ending of your character, who who's spell burned and failed and was left there boneless in the Giants.
1: Butt.
0: <laughs> yeah. That was great. Right. Yeah. I mean, you were, you had called up like 30 hellhounds on every previous adventure. And that was the one time you failed. And I was like, in fact, that was your very last session in New York. As I recall. So
1: that
0: was, <laughs> it works.
2: That's, uh. No, I, t- I, I still get a good uh, people I still get a lot of good feedback about Sour Spring Hollow. Uh people, people have a, a great love for that. They you know, they enjoy the fact we get to squeeze a gardenell in yes. there. Right. Um, <laughs> which, which I I actually had to rewrite I had to rewrite the rules for that because the first couple of times I play tested that, some some poor person like they had all their zero level PCs run into the garden. Oh. So like I wiped out all their characters in like one right. blow. I am like, okay, all right. So now I had to rewrite it that it only eats two people before it shuts its mouth. So. Right. Um, <laughs> and and the corn the corn husk dolls freak people oh, out. Yeah, I yeah. am very happy the way that they those those are working as intended. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, so it's that and uh, with actually uh, with the with the reprint with the hardcover, I, I got to write a new section which is called uh, Mauginiti's uh, Book of Backwoods Wisdom. Which is, uh, if, if anybody remembers, um, what the Begintis or the Hill Giants, which show up in the Chain Coffin. So this is Ma Begintis. So uh, it's all st- told to the story of a of a halfling who has been kidnapped and is and is you know due for the stew pot at the McGinty House, <laughs> and and he manages to he may, basically in the classic kind of the the literary trope of uh, I, I will keep writing your story so so you don't eat me. Uh, he goes and manages to record all of Ma Beginti's backwards wisdom. Um, so a, a lot of that was drawn on various books I. Have about Appalachian folklore, like I said, some of the the Foxfire books. Uh, so there's there's there are uh, honest to goodness recipes in there. There are new songs. There are new oh, monsters. There, you know, yeah. I mean, there, I, I, it's. It, I think it, it may be, and I'm, I'm sure that even Greg Stafford didn't do this. It may be the only role playing supplement which has a recipe for possum in it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You know, here in New York, we'll just find a city possum.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're scurrying all through the subway tracks. (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) That is too funny.
1: So, so Michael, obviously you've written the chain coffin for dungeon crawl classics and it's it seems like you would probably answer dungeon crawl classics this question but one of the questions we like to ask people is what system do you think would best be suited to running a game like uh like what we just read in the story here so if you wanted to do kind of Mm -hmm. a really kind of true to form john the balladeer story what system would you want to use for that and why
2: Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, Call, well, actually, Call of Cthulhu began when um, Call of Cthulhu began as a uh, American Gothic uh, role playing game ba- that was largely inspired by Manly Wade Wellman. Really? Um, yeah, uh, and it wasn't until it wasn't until Chaosium got the license to do uh, the Lovecraft stuff that they said, "Okay, let, we're going to make this a Call of Cthulhu uh, role playing game." Um, I did not know I think, that. I think. Yeah, I think it's uh, Sandy. Uh, Sandy Peterson originally started uh building. I think it was either going to be called like American Gothic, um, hmm. and it wasn't until and then the, like uh, I guess Greg Stafford and the Chaosium crew. They they were like, okay, well, we like the idea for this, but let's do mm-hmm. Lovecraft uh, because mm-hmm. I and um, and that's and that was and that's how it, that's how it became. And I think Call of Cthulhu is still one of the greatest role playing systems ever. Oh, I mean, yeah. So. Um, so yeah, that's a no-brainer. I mean, I, w- I would do Call of Cthulhu. I would probably play downplay the sanity a little bit because uh, right, right. you know. But uh, but I mean, it has all the, everything you need to run a silver John. I'm sorry, I'm oh! down doing it myself. John, John the Balladeer story. <laughs> John the Balladeer story. Uh, right, right. You, you could you could ditch you could you could pull out of a uh, Call of Cthulhu. You know.
0: So. Yeah, I would tend to agree because John is incredibly competent but as you say pretty broad and the sort of the basic role playing system sort of lends c- to creating characters like that they're not hyper focused the way that sort of OD uh D&D based games are right and so and um uh, and he doesn't really in any meaningful sense um level up so to speak right he's 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 you know he gains a little bit more knowledge but he's sort of consistently a very competent human but not superhuman right right
2: yeah, you definitely want to go something which is uh, with a character with like a skill-based character system. Yeah, you could you could probably Savage Worlds would probably work too if you really know Savage Worlds as well. I just I would go with Call of Cthulhu just because I I can Call of Cthulhu is one of those games which I not only love that I'm just very familiar with and right, I can right. tweak it any way so.
1: And that's a great point because also that also then eliminates D&D from a lot of this too because John the Balladeer really isn't motivated by killing monsters and especially not by getting treasure. There are so many times in the story that he flat out refuses treasure. At one point he even says that jewels are a misfortune. <laughs> right. um, and definitely if you wanted to do like BX or or any kind of older version of D&D where you not only level up by monster killing you also level up by getting gold this is not compatible. the the the, right. the the story as written is not compatible with that style of role playing,
0: right. 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 You can. I mean, in fact. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, you. I
1: mean, where, where,
2: you know, where Call of Cthulhu is half the time you're out looking for some hoary old tome of mind shattering madness. If you were doing using Call of Cthulhu to run, you know, a John the Balladier Appalachian story, when like you could be looking for a new song, which will right. add three percentiles to your, you know, folklore or you right. know, or your, you know, play mountain music skill or
0: you know, right, so. right, and then a, a few of the spell songs could be treated as a skill slash spell, right, right. In and that, you, spell, you
2: spend some magic points and you make your play, you know, Eldritch song and then and, and it has an effect. So
0: right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's your, that's definitely uh, you know, and I think that's people tend to forget that the basic role playing slash RuneQuest slash Call of Cthulhu has just as much of a claim to being quote unquote OSR as anything that's sort of from the D&D lineage mm-hmm. and, and it's definitely, as we say maybe the more appropriate scale or engine depending on the kind of stories that we may be trying to replicate in in some cases. That's fair. Uh yeah.
1: Now was there anything that while you guys were reading this story you thought I really like this idea and I would like to bring this into the next adventure I write or the next game that I run was was there something that kind of that and I I'm, I'm sure Michael Curtis you you've <laughs> I, I I
2: said yes I've done that all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but maybe even something kind of a little more subtle. I don't know. How, how about you Hoy? Was there anything that kind of struck you in that way?
0: I think one thing that's very interesting... I mean, we do do this in a lot of our games, and obviously, again, Call of Cthulhu is well-suited for this, but the idea of sort of specific knowledge rather than just sort of like, oh, I have, you know, X percent in my uh, fighting skill or I'm a level three fighter, you know, specific knowledge of how to defeat or work with, uh, you know, or otherwise uh, stop the various evils that are going on, I think is really interesting. So I I think that's, you know, good to work into adventures. I mean, there should always be more than one way to deal with a problem, but you know the way that really gives it the most—you know—puts the nicest bow on it. Uh, I think is always more a fun way to do things.
1: The the part that really struck stuck out for me is um, on page eighty nine. There's this great little paragraph that says, "You don't get used to that breed of mountain night noises. Not even if you're born and raised there and live and die there. Noises too soft and sneaky to be real whispering voices. Noises like big slow wings, far off and then near." And above and below the trail, noises like heavy, soft paws, keeping pace with you. Sometimes two paws, sometimes four, sometimes many. They stay with you. And it just kind of goes on. And that 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 paragraph really kind of excited my imagination and reminded me that when characters are traveling through the wilderness, I want to make sure that I'm never making them feel like they're alone and they're safe. If... If if I can really kind of work into that kind of atmosphere, that everywhere they're going, they're hearing sounds, and and there's like this this nearness that the, the, the threats are constantly near. That, I mean that's
2: a that is a that that is a a, a lofty and a, and a value you know a. a, a an admirable goal. Yes. I think, the, the, I think, I think the only problem with that is that that's, I mean, that's a great way to differentiate, differentiate like literature from role-playing because like, if you, tr- if you do that in a role-playing game, you know, the player, like that's going to grind travel to a halt. Oh, because true. They, they're going to keep looking for the monsters. Be, <laughs> right. They were so worried. Like, okay, you know, like, all right, they, they will, for, they will start writing out their defensive formations. You know, when it's like,
1: it's, it's a freaking raccoon in a tree. I mean, <laughs> or guys, it's just flavor text.
0: right 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 right,
1: right. (laughs) (laughs) okay fine there's nothing (laughs) 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 just keep walking to your destiny (laughs) Um,
0: one idea i like is uh because each of these songs that he sings is, is in essence a ritual right and um To make magic maybe potentially more descriptive on the part of the spellcaster, you can't just say, I cast fireball. I do this, this, and this, and a fireball spurts out of my finger. You know what I'm saying? So to give magic, to make magic a little bit more narrative, in a sense, would be interesting. Uh, Again, I don't know what systems are best suited for that. Is that fate? Is that something else? But, you know, um, I I would like to see a little bit more of that and like magic be a little bit less mechanical um, for this kind of story.
1: Yeah, because definitely the the magic in Who Fears the Devil was very, and very much had steps. They had rituals. They were very involved processes. You didn't really ever just have somebody who just like said a word and then some crazy thing happened.
0: Right. And then a lot of times he's actually already geased and, he, you know, just and doesn't even know it. It's like, oh, I called you here. It's like, did you, you know, right?
1: You know. <laughs> and actually, I think that ties in nicely to the, the new Lankmar box set, um, which you also have written, Michael Curtis, uh, the um, spell stipulations. I feel like yeah. that is a really, really nice addition to the Dungeon Crawl Classic spell casting. Those of you who aren't familiar with with this principle... In Dungeon Crawl Classics, usually there's this idea of mercurial magic where your version of the spell operates different than anybody else's. Maybe when you cast a spell, there are like little tinkling lights everywhere. But when the next person casts that same spell, one of his closest friends may die. Um, Who who knows how your version of the spell is going to act? But in Lankmar, instead, you roll on a table to find out what your character needs to do to cast that spell each time. Like maybe you need to do it at night or you need to have like a a, a brazier that you're like, you know, burning incense in or something like that. And I I feel like bringing something like that into your spellcasting system for kind of a Manly Wade Wellman style game might be a really nice addition. Mm Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah. maybe I even if you know wanted that, to bring lot- more, more of that flavor into the Chain Coffin box set, I think that would be a fun house rule to play DCC with spell stipulations instead of Mercurial Magic if you're doing the Chain Coffin. I, I think so, too. I, I, now I think I'm
2: kicking myself because I, I didn't manage to find a way to, to to bring the spell summon George Washington into the Lankmar box set. You
1: know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I guess a, he's a
0: patron or something like that. Yeah, oh, <laughs> oh, I guess oh, well, yeah. Oh, With
2: with my other side project, which I never get around to finishing, yeah, I'm sure at some point I'll, he will turn up. As uh, uh, that's as, for
0: uh, secret antiquities for those. Yeah. Of you. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, do you have another, speaking of that, do you have another issue sort of in the pipeline of that? I I Uh, have,
2: I have topics for the next two and it's just uh uh, like, I'm kind of doing research on one right now. Um, I've gone back and forth with what, what two I want to do. And then I had like an idea for like a third thing. It's just, they're just constantly warring. like who who's, they're, they're fighting it out in like the Thunderdome in my head. And whoever, right. whoever manages to defeat the other two will be what the next issue is. So, there you go. Um, <laughs> But that, that really also involves in like what my free time allows, So, which is right now has been the issue with getting Lankmar out the door. And, and I'm in the middle of doing something else right now, which is going to take me into January. So, I don't oh, know. <sighs> Uh, I need, I really need, I keep going on we need 36 hour days. That's right. what we do. We have 36 we hour days. Mar- I can get done every, uh, everything I need to. But. I
0: guess if we lived on Mars or something like that, it would work yeah. out, right?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Well, we are starting to run out of time. Uh, Michael, is there any kind of last thing you're really itching to say about all of this that you didn't quite get a chance to? You know what? I have to say that
2: going back and reading, re- like reading this story, and this might be this. It's, like I said, it's been a good couple of years since I've read it, and it's just it. It really struck me on how. Now I wouldn't say likable, but how how like I uh, John the Balladeer. If like these stories were written in the 1950s, mm-hmm. and he's very indicative of being a character from the 1950s. I mean, especially like a you know a you know a, a good old mountain boy. You know he's very polite to women. You know he is. Uh, you know he's he's very God. You know he's he's God in country. You know I mean, and these are all you know at, at the time that was considered very the very admirable qualities for an American for American to have. And then we get into the 1960s and we get to the, like the counterculture and in the 1970s and like John then becomes he's almost like um, he's he's like a throwback. He's, he's like, he becomes the establishment. And in some ways it's, he, he's, he's, he's not, he's not anti-hero enough. Um, right. And like, he's no Elric, you know? And, and, and now I guess, and now I, I don't know if it's, maybe it's the changes going on in our country at this point or anything, but it's just, it's funny. It's like, I feel in some ways the pendulum is swinging back, but in the way of that, like he, like John is admiral again, because he has the qual like he's nonpartisan. Like, you know, like his, his love for country is an honest love for country. It's not, you know, this side or that side or, and his, his love for God is an honest piety. It's not, you know, it's not a, you know, it's i I'm not in this to raise, you know, a million dollars through my, you know, my, you know, my phone in church or anything
0: like that. <laughs> um, I mean, there's so, definitely talk. So
2: that. That just struck me as curious. Is like you know, and, and kind of, if you're around long enough, you live to become the the, the villain, and then maybe you will live long enough to
0: come back to be the hero again. So <laughs>
1: exactly. Or if you're anything like Kujal, you'll you'll end your adventure where you started it. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, and to sort of expand on that, I mean, John is actually described it sort of very light in a very light-handed manner as being very tolerant because he's seen so much, right? Like you know, he left the the, you know, the Appalachia and was in Korea and, you know, met all sorts of people in the army and all these kinds of things like that, which, so he has a a sort of, without being sort of heavy handed about it, he's Mm. he's very tolerant of, you know, even monsters, as long as they are sort of not overtly, you know, evil and trying to, you know, chomp on him. Right. Right.
2: And, (laughs) you know, to to tie in with that though, it was also curious on this time when doing the read through again, is that I, I think it was this time around that I noticed how, I mean, you know, Fant you know fantasy appendix and you know a fantasy of anything at that point is definitely like at this point in time it was a, definitely a white guy's game and although how much this was took place in such like racially and culturally diverse areas Appalachia how very white everybody like John runs into is yeah like, I don't think I don't think it's until I, th- I think there, there's somebody who's Native American in one of the later stories which is I think is in the planet maybe maybe in the in the the, the planet uh, stories collection. Mm-hmm.
0: There is um, definitely an, an, an American Indian Native American in Frogfather, which is actually predates this, this right, right. And then there's a, there is one other character in there. I think yeah, I forget which exact story it is, but you're right,
2: right. But and for this one, it was very it was just, it, it just it, I don't I don't know. It's been, maybe it was just a you know change. Maybe maybe I was just reading with different eyes this time around. You know, and I, I'm not you know I'm not putting any aspersions on you know what what Manly Wade Wellman. Whether you know, it's not like Lovecraft where it's really easy to say okay, well we know where he's coming from. You know yeah. right. Um, right.
1: But uh, but just it's
2: just it's noticeable. It was noticeable mm-hmm. for me this time around.
1: Yeah, it's that. true. There is there is a real lack of diversity, but also there is a lack of um, seething racism at the same time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, which is not what you get with Lovecraft, you know? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's probably a great note to end up on. So, uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Yeah, yeah, no, such a no
2: pleasure, problem. Michael. Yeah. Any, anytime we can end with, you know, bashing Lovecraft's racism is fine by me. Right, <laughs> <Sounds> that was. <laughs> that. And yeah, our next. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> totally. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for uh, having me. I, I really enjoyed being here and talking about Wilming. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: And our next episode is on HP Lovecraft. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 our, our next two episodes, episode 37 will be on Jack Williamson's darker than you think. And episode 38 will be on Gardner F. Fox's Kothar of the magic sword. Uh, right, you hoy. have to say that
0: with the exclamation point. Oh, yeah. Kothar of the Magic Sword! Sword! Kothar of the Magic Sword! <laughs> right. uh,
1: and Hoy, can you let people know how they can get a hold of us?
0: Sure. Uh, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. You can look for us on Twitter at appendix underscore n. Uh, we are on mewe too and Facebook as well, so look for us on all those spots and uh, G+, as long as it's around. If you get a chance, please rate us on iTunes and or Google Play because it really helps people find us. And uh, yes. We would love to hear from all of you. And see you in the stacks. Read on.
2: The library is closed.